When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Remember, Marie had given a statement saying she'd seen a man three times the weekend of the murder wearing a long black coat. So we already talked about one of these sightings, the hitchhiker. Marie passed the man hitchhiking in her car early Sunday morning, near where Ian was staying at the Murphy's house. This sighting served only one purpose for the guards. If they could establish it was Ian, it would help confirm he was the man from Marie's other two sightings. Those other two sightings would potentially connect Ian to Sophie. Here's what we know about them. On Saturday afternoon in Skull, Sophie visited Marie's shop. Marie told the guards that at around the same time, she spotted the man across the street standing in front of the butcher shop. Was he following Sophie? And was it even possible that this man was Ian? Well, there was another witness who told the guards that she'd seen both Ian and Sophie in Skull at the same time. Well, there isn't really an awful lot to tell. I mean, I... They weren't together. I didn't see them together at all. Skull local Carrie Williams was in town, shopping with her two young daughters that day. There were loads of people out shopping, and she came out of the spa and literally walked into us, or we walked into her. We bumped... Sophie did. I clocked that he was on the other side of the street. This was in the days where he he had his long black trench coat and his big boots and his staff. I always noticed him. Ian told us he was in Skull that afternoon, but he didn't see Sophie. He said he wouldn't have recognised Sophie even if he had seen her. But he did say to us that it's possible that Carrie saw him in town, which means that it's possible that at some point on Saturday... When Sophie was in Skull, Ian was on the other side of the road. Then there was the third sighting, on the night of the murder, on the coast road, down by Kilfada Bridge. Ian had no idea who was making these statements about him to the guards. At the time, he wouldn't have even known who Marie Farrell was. But he knew the spot they were talking about, and he says that Kilfada Bridge didn't even make sense to him. You know, this this is wild rural... Island, And I've often, and maybe you've done it as well, if you drive along at night in a place where there aren't any lights and you pass somebody, unless you knew that person, it would be very difficult to identify them. Um, you know, you're, you're gone in a flash. You, you, you know you might have seen somebody. You might, that person might have a hood on. You might not even know if they're male or female. We've driven this coast road many times at night and wondered about this sighting. It's dark. There aren't any street lights. But it was a full moon the night Sophie was murdered, so maybe not as dark as other nights. And Kilfada Bridge comes just after a bend in the road. So Marie may have slowed down, and as she turned for a crucial instant, the headlights might have lit up the black-coated figure like a camera flash. So maybe it's possible. This was the important sighting for the guards, because it would put Ian out of the house and near the scene of the crime, not at home in bed with Jules, his alibi for the night of the murder. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, I'm going to jump straight back into the case. Listener discretion is advised. You just heard a clip from the podcast West Cork, and if you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend that you do. Now, as I said in the last episode, I'm going to get into the Marie Farrell of it all, but first I want to tell you about the beginning of the Director of Public Prosecution's report. This report I've been doing mental gymnastics with, admittedly. 
And in the last episode, because I was talking about Jules, I wanted to tell you about what he had written regarding Jules and about Bailey. And I wanted it to be fresh in your minds exactly what Bailey did to Jules in terms of the domestic abuse, the domestic violence and the very serious assaults on her. I also wanted to let you know that Jules spoke with Isabel Conway at the Mail on Sunday in June of this year, post-separating from Bailey. And yes, they are now separated. That may well be a spoiler alert for some, but this is real life. They are separated and that's what prompted me to look at this case. And suffice to say that Jules has remained separated. So well done, Jules. It's not easy after many, many years of being with someone. Now, the article's headline read, My daughters were thrilled when I finished with Ian Bailey. So this is the Mail on Sunday granted, but the headline says it all. And in the article, Jules also reveals that she had asked Jim Sheridan not to include the pictures of her injuries from the assaults in the docuseries. Now, she said that she didn't want it to weigh against Bailey. And yes, seriously, she did say that. But Jim Sheridan apparently replied that he had to include them, otherwise he could be accused of being biased. Well, that also implies to me that they had a good relationship and that Jules and Bailey thought that Jim Sheridan was very much on their side. Now, I have to accept that this was when she was still with Bailey, but also bear in mind that that's what she chose to tell the Mail on Sunday journalist. You see, she's still advocating for Bailey, or she was at this time. And just because someone leaves the abuser, it doesn't undo all the years, and in Jules's case, the 30-odd years of brainwashing, gaslighting, and programming that an abuser has done. In fact, it takes a very long time working with women to undo all of this, and for them to find their true voice, as well as the confidence to use it. So in the last episode, I shared with you the end of the DPP's report, and now I'm going to share with you the beginning of it. Now, he starts by outlining Sophie's injuries, as well as the fact that there was no forensic evidence linking Bailey to the murder. In fact, the report is actually entitled Analysis of the Evidence to Link Ian Bailey to the Sophie Toscan Duplantier Murder. Subheading, Lack of Forensic Evidence Linking Ian Bailey to the Murder Scene. Okay, so those headlines paint the picture very clearly, but I want to jump into the very last paragraph of this section, and I'm going to read to you exactly what it says at the bottom of page one. Now, if Bailey had murdered Sophie, he would have known that there was a definite possibility of forensic evidence such as blood, fibres, hair or skin tissue being discovered at the scene. His voluntary provision of fingerprints and a specimen of his blood is objectively indicative of innocence. Yes, you heard that right. His voluntary provision of fingerprints and a specimen of his blood is objectively indicative of innocence. Not many things surprise me, but this did. And that's why I'm reading it to you twice. Because I read it twice. Three times and four times. And I've reread it numerous times since then. You see, this sets the tone of the report. Let me firstly tell you why this statement concerned me right at the very outset of a report like this. I've worked on many cases where the suspect has cooperated and willingly given his DNA, and then he was matched as the killer and or the rapist. Some have even inserted themselves into the investigation, and they've been the most charming and cooperative of individuals. Any experienced detective or law enforcement professionals worth their weight will attest to similar experiences. So this is a flawed assumption. Secondly, Bailey was a reporter, and his beat was crime, and so I'd expect him to have some knowledge of investigations and forensics. Albeit, remember, forensic science and analysis was still new at this time and was very much in its infancy. And of course, Bailey may well have taken some countermeasures, and he would certainly know that he would have to cooperate. Now, this being the headline at the start of the report, if this was instrumental in shaping the DPP's decision-making, that decision being not to prosecute Bailey, and I'm inclined to believe that it was most likely a very strong plank of it, it's deeply troubling. It also makes me wonder about how and why a seasoned DPP would make this determination. And so I started to do some digging and found out that the DPP didn't actually write this report. A solicitor from his office called Robert Sheehan did. 
more on that to come. But I'm going to continue to refer to it as the DPP's report because that's what it's known as. But it was someone writing on his behalf. Now, I can't tell you whether the DPP actually signed off on it. And I mean, physically signed off on it, read it, signed off on it. I would imagine, and I don't like to make assumptions, but I would imagine in a high profile case like this, he did. But I can't tell you that for sure. But it's very important because this report has had very serious repercussions and ramifications. Okay, so I want to jump into Marie Farrell because I know so many people are confused about her statements. And I say statements because we know that her first statements, well, I'm going to tell you a bit more about that, but you heard in the clip some of the backstory to it. And she originally said that she saw Ian Bailey in the early hours of December the 23rd, Neil Kelfather Bridge. And then she recanted. But it was some time later that she recanted. And not only did she recant, but she actually said that the guards told her to make it up. And she testified in support of Bailey, or good enough in terms of doing a full 360. So your questions to me have been, what do I think has gone on? Why would she do this? And which version of events should we trust, if any? Well, originally Marie Farrell told the guardie that she saw a man outside her shop, Tara Fashions, on December the 21st between 2 and 3pm. She said that he was wearing a long black coat and that he was loitering outside when an elegant woman who fitted Sophie's description entered her shop. Now, Marie Farrell also said that she thought she saw the same man the next day on the morning of Sunday the 22nd of December past a place called Air Hill on the western side of Skull. She made her statement on December the 27th, and she described the man as being of average height initially, and then she changed the height from 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 10, and much has been made of this. Now, she says that this was at the suggestion of one of the guards who pointed out that from where she saw him, he would most likely be taller than she had originally estimated, and he used himself as a yardstick of sorts, saying that he was around 5 foot 11. Now, in a later statement, she told guard Kelleher, and I quote, that the man was very tall. I could not say in measurement. Now, it goes without saying this isn't good practice, but I've seen in numerous other cases situations where the police have suggested a change in description. And of course, it happened when I was talking about P.S., the case that I've covered extensively, the murder of the women in Yorkshire and Manchester and beyond. And I said then, and I'm saying it now, that this shouldn't happen. Never. Full stop. Period. Never influence the description that a witness is giving of a suspect or a person. They were the ones that saw them. Now, Bailey is, of course, over six foot, and so much has been made of this, and you can make of it what you will. Some say it was the guards trying to stitch up Bailey, and that's what he's said. But it was only a couple of inches that we're talking about here, and unfortunately, two and two can equal five in these situations. Sadly, it can just be police incompetence and that and that alone. Now, of course, that doesn't make it okay. Interestingly, the RTE Crime Line showed aired early in January, and there was an appeal for information on Sophie's murder. And it was on January the 11th that Fiona, in inverted commas, rings Band and Garda station from a public phone box in Cork City to tell them that she saw a man by Kelfada Bridge around 3am on the night that Sophie was murdered. Now, Fiona, in inverted commas, called in two more times, and the last time was from her home address, and that's when the police traced the call back to Marie Farrell. Detective Jim Fitzgerald, Garda Jim Slattery, and Garda Kevin Kelleher visited her on January the 28th. It was then that she told them that the matter was delicate and that she couldn't go to court, but the man she saw was wearing a long black coat and was Ian Bailey. Now, at the time, she was with another man, an old flame in the early hours of the morning. And that's why it was a risk her coming forward. Because she was with this other man, despite the fact that she was married to Chris and they had five children together, four boys and one girl. Now, Nick Foster quotes a section from Marie Farrell's police statement in his book, and I'm going to read it to you now. As we were driving towards Sylvia Connell's place on Golan Road, I saw a man with a long black coat. I now know this man to be Ian Bailey from Skull. The time was about 3am. He appeared to be stumbling forward on the road and had his hands on top of his head. I'm in an awful state since and could not tell Chris, and the person with me is also married and he's very worried. 
I cannot go to court on this. You understand yourselves my position. Now, this was the breakthrough the guards were looking for. However, Marie Farrell later recanted, saying that the guards just told her to sign the statement and that they wrote the content. But it's a fact that she reported a strange man in a long black coat prior to the murder watching a woman who looked like Sophie and then a man near the bridge. Not at the bridge itself, but near it. Now, Kelfada Bridge was a short concrete slab over the Kelfada stream with a low barrier either side. Now, the question that's on my mind is why would Marie Farrell go to the bother of calling the police in the first place? What's to be gained? And remember, she called them three times. But what's not totally clear to me is the exact timeline of these calls and the crime line show, and whether Marie Farrell consistently said that it was the same man that she saw outside the shop before Sophie was murdered, and then again the morning of December 23rd. And I want to know the detail, of course. The devil is in the detail and the timeline. That having been said, some might say that Marie Farrell stuck her neck out and took a risk making those calls to the police. And of course, she used a pseudonym to minimise and mitigate some of that risk. But perhaps it's as simple as what she saw bothered her so much that she decided to do the right thing and call the police. But I have to ask the question, why go to the bother and put yourself and also someone else your old flame, your lover, at risk, because more questions would be asked. What's also important to know is that Marie Farrell went to the trouble of getting a solicitor to warn Bailey to stop harassing and threatening her. Why would she do this if it weren't true? And by the way, and it's a big by the way, Marie Farrell reported to police Bailey's threatening and harassing behaviour towards her 17 times. One, seven, seventeen. Now that's significant. And you see, others saw his behaviour towards her too. So why would she report it if it weren't true? And why would other people say that they saw it? What's the gain? But 17 times and nothing happens. What did the police do? And what did the prosecutors do? And I did some more digging around that. You see, a lack of action would certainly make a woman well, a significant witness in this case, feel vulnerable, intimidated and unprotected. So again, I have to ask, what action was taken to prosecute Bailey for his behaviour? They were serious offences being alleged. The harassment and stalking and also the threatening and intimidating a significant witness in a case. Sadly, when I set these allegations in the broader context, I can attest that this is not an anomaly regarding the stalking and harassment. In fact, no action is taken in many, many cases when women report, particularly when they've been threatened or harassed or stalked. So that part doesn't surprise me if that were the case. Now, I've seen this time and time again in my casework and also running Paladin National Stalking Advocacy Service. It's why I set up the charity to help victims and to support them and to advocate for them. And it's also why, before setting Paladin up, that I spearheaded law reform to create a specific criminal offence of stalking so that the behaviour would be identified and taken seriously. But stalking is still not a criminal offence in Ireland. Coercive control is but stalking is not. So that's something that still needs to be remedied and addressed. So if this were the case, and Marie Farrell reported 17 times, and I'm going to come back to this, and Bailey wasn't arrested and charged, it would be no wonder that Marie Farrell felt unprotected and compromised. And like so many women, perhaps she took a decision to minimise and mitigate the risk herself. Perhaps that's why she later recanted and said that she signed this statement and the guards wrote the content. In my professional experience, people always work to and respond to their greatest fear. Now, we may not always know what it is, but I'd have a pretty good bet that her life was made miserable and that she had had enough. The other thing I'll throw into the mix is a good journalist may often flip people and talk them around. That's how sources are born and created after all. And we heard Bailey do that on the podcast, and we saw him do it in the docu-series. And let's not forget that before moving to Ireland, he had written articles for The Times, The Sunday Times, and The Daily Telegraph, as well as The Sunday Mirror. And he'd worked on stories relating to GCHQ and intelligence. So perhaps he changed tact and deployed that skill set on Marie Farrell. 
And perhaps if money was offered and it mitigated the risk of his threats, perhaps Marie Farrell was persuaded to take that option rather than be left dangling and exposed at the end of the criminal justice system, vulnerable, isolated and at risk. And remember what Paul Gallagher said in the libel trial. He said people were frightened of Bailey. So it's not really a stretch to see how Marie Farrell might be minded to mitigate the risk herself if the police and others were not going to protect her. And of course, it's very easy to blame her and hold her responsible for the case going south. And it seems to me it was very convenient for some police and others to use her as a scapegoat to perhaps deflect attention from their own inadequacies and shortcomings. You see, all too often women bear the brunt when it all goes wrong. But if you put yourself in her shoes, her options really weren't that good, nor were they attractive. Also, journalist and author Michael Sheridan spent time with Marie Farrell. He said he's interviewed many people across his career, and he felt that what she had said first off her first account was authentic. And so I have to entertain the possibility that perhaps she wanted to make herself out to be non-credible as a witness, which is why she said what she did. She just wanted out of the whole process. But of course, only Marie Farrell really knows – Now, I want to share with you what the DPP concluded about Marie Farrell in the 2001 report. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Firstly, in the report, Marie Farrell was dealt with under the heading, The Unreliability of Marie Farrell. And that section was around three pages long. But the heading tells you everything you need to know. Ostensibly, much was made of the fact that there was a change in description, namely the man's height and build. There was also mention of confusion around the third sighting of the man thumbing the lift. And she said that that was the same man, that was Ian Bailey, and that there was some confusion around it being the Sunday or the Monday morning when she saw him. Now, if it were early on the Sunday morning, that being the 22nd of December, Mark Murphy and a number of other witnesses say that Bailey stayed the night at Mark's house and had breakfast with them around this time. And the fact that she initially said that the man in the car was a friend rather than a lover, well, the DPP stated that her reliability as a witness was further diminished as she had lied about that and the fact that she wouldn't give her lover's name, and that he may well refute what she was saying. The DPP's report concludes this section with this. Even if the identification was definite, this would be of little probative value given the location was not even indirectly en route between the scene of the murder and Bailey's home. Okay, so what did you make of that? And no doubt you're wondering what I make of it all. Well, firstly, eyewitness testimony, particularly regarding descriptions, especially heights and build, well, they're notoriously unreliable. For example, when someone has been threatened or assaulted, the perpetrator's height and build may well be reported as being taller and bigger. Now, a side note, the DPP's report states on a number of occasions that Bailey is six foot two, but it's also recorded in other official documents that he's six foot four. And so there's discrepancy even in official documents too. You see how easily it's done. And of course, the days may well have been confused too, but it might have been the guards taking the note and the interpretation of what they've written that could be the confusion point and not necessarily what the witness said. 
That having been said regarding the description, I suspect that she did change the description due to the guard influencing her, but it doesn't necessarily need to be for nefarious reasons. And lastly, the area where the man was sighted was close to a body of water. And no, that wasn't a direct route back to Bailey's address from Sophie's, but it was an indirect route back. And that may well have been taken as an indirect route because of that body of water, for the very reason of disposing of the murder weapon. Now that should not have been dismissed out of hand, in my opinion, by the DPP, but it shows the report author didn't understand the geography of the crime scene. Now that's a major limitation and challenge, in my opinion. So what are my thoughts about Marie Farrell? Well, I believe her first account to be the authentic account, particularly given the fact that Kerry Williams corroborated what Marie said about the sighting in Skull. Now, you heard Kerry in the first clip, and she was shopping at the time with her daughters, and she ran into Sophie, and she also saw Bailey on the other side of the street. Well, she sounds credible to me, and why would she lie? Also, the risk that Marie Farrell took, her naivety about the process itself, as well as the 17 reports to police regarding the harassment and intimidation by Bailey, well, why would she put her head above the parapet if it weren't true? And there's no mention of Kerry, nor of the 17 reports to police in the DPP report regarding the allegations of stalking, harassment and intimidation. But remember, the DPP's report was written in 2001, and Bailey didn't know originally who had made the reports against him. He found that later on. And the report was also written before she recanted her significant sightings of Bailey. But what I can tell you is that I found out that former Inspector Vincent Duggan had taken statements from Marie Farrell and submitted them in a file to the DPP requesting that Bailey be prosecuted for the harassment of Marie Farrell. But yet again, the DPP decided against prosecution. Ernest Cantillon, a court-based solicitor, was instructed by Marie Farrell in 2004 after she had received a letter from Bailey's solicitor, Frank Buttermore, alleging she had made false complaints that Bailey was harassing her, which had been reported in the media, and asking her to desist. Ernest Cantillon, in turn, wrote to Frank Buttermore on behalf of Marie Farrell, saying that there would be no retraction of her allegations and that if proceedings were taken against her, she would counterclaim. Interestingly, no response was received and no proceedings were taken by Bailey against Marie Farrell. Now that to me is very interesting and it's instructive. For someone who had no qualms about suing eight newspapers for libel and then the Garda Commissioner and State, why didn't he pursue Marie Farrell? Now only he can answer that of course, but remember Occam's razor, the simplest explanation is normally the right one. And that's what I believe and it's my opinion. Okay, so continuing with the totality of circumstances, there's the bleach that Bailey bought on December the 23rd at the Happy Shopper the day after the murder. Now that stood out as an odd purchase, as that's the only thing he bought apparently. And linked to that were the dark clothes being soaked in the bathtub in Bailey's bathroom, according to Ariana Barina. She couldn't say what the clothes were, but she also included in her police statement that Bailey had scratches on his arms and hands and a scratch on his face. Then there's the police searches of Jules's house where Bailey was living on February the 10th, 1997. Now much was made of this in Jim Sheridan's documentary Murder at the Cottage, and the DPP report also stated that there was no blood or DNA found on Bailey's clothes that were seized that matched Sophie. But, and it is a big and important but, the house wasn't searched between December 23rd, 1996 and February 10th, 1997. And that time delay is a major problem in my opinion. Evidence may well have been destroyed or hidden and the clothing seized may not have been the same clothing used or worn on December the 22nd, December the 23rd. And remember, Bailey did ask a neighbour to take his diaries. They were later recovered, but it begs the question whether anything else was destroyed or hidden. And we know about the bonfire. When I talk about the DPP's report, I'll get to the bonfire. But first, I want to talk about a number of witnesses who came forward. Okay, so in no particular order, there was Bill Fuller. Now, in the last episode, I'd already talked about Bill Fuller and the statements that Bailey had made to him about Bill attacking Sophie. And when Bill challenged him and said, well, that's the sort of thing that you would do, 
He then turned around and said, well, actually, that's how I met Jules. I saw her tight ass and wanted her. You'll recall that. And that he also said that Bailey was always talking about women and sex. But something else that Bill Fuller disclosed was that he saw Jules on the Monday morning driving the direction of Galeen Close to Calfada Bridge in the white Ford Fiesta. And then there's James Kemier, who said that on the Monday morning he saw a nervous and distressed Jules whilst on his fruit and vegetable stall, and she told him there'd been a murder. She said a French woman had been killed and Ian Bailey was reporting on it. And then there's Fenella Thomas, Jules's daughter, She said that she was at home on the Monday morning with a heavy cold. She said that Jules and Bailey had left the cottage the morning of Monday the 23rd of December and that they were out for a couple of hours. And in May 2014, Jules tried to pressure Fenella into changing her statement, but she wouldn't. And then there's Shirley Foster. Shirley said that she had seen Bailey and Jules on that Monday morning and they seemed to be in a hurry driving up the lane and that they had already turned onto the track leading to Sophie's house. She had signalled for Bailey to stop, but he seemed to know exactly where he was going, she said. And then there was Caroline Leftwick. Bailey had called Caroline that Monday morning to cancel going to collect some garlic from her. She asked why he wasn't able to make it and he said that there'd been a murder and that he was covering it. He also said it was a French woman. She asked if she knew her, and he said no, it was someone on holiday. She was certain of this, and she said that he sounded excited. And Paul O'Coleman, well, he stated that 11.30am, Bailey called him. He said he had to cancel dropping off the turkey. He also said that he was excited, and he'd said that he was going back into journalism. Eddie Cassidy, Well, Eddie believed he called Bailey around 1.40pm on the Monday and that he said a body had been found in the area of Tourmore and he may have said the dead woman was foreign. He also said he had no idea it was a murder at the time. At 2.40pm, Bailey was at the scene. And then there's Podrick Byrne, who was the Irish independent photographic editor whom Bailey told he had a pick-up picture of Sophie that he'd taken himself. He said that she was French and that he also had pictures of the crime scene. Michael McSweeney. Bailey later spoke with a man called Michael McSweeney and said that he had taken pictures of the crime scene. When asked what time he took the pictures, Bailey apparently replied between 10 and 11am. And then there's the news editor, Helen Callanan. Helen hired Bailey as a reporter. She then found out he was a suspect in the case. He calmly told her that he was responsible for the crime and he said, yes, I did it. I killed her to resurrect my career as a journalist. Now, she said that there was no sarcasm, no humour involved and she found it a really odd response. And Malachi Reed. Malachi was a 14-year-old schoolboy at the time. He said that on February the 4th, 1997, Bailey gave him a lift home and he said that he'd killed Sophie and that he, and I quote, went up there with a rock and bashed her fucking brains out. Malachi gave a police statement. He also said he was scared by what Bailey said. So now I'm going to share with you some of the sections of the DPP's 2001 report which correspond to the witnesses who came forward. Now, there's a large section in the DPP's report regarding who knew what on the day Sophie's body was found. Telephone records are quoted, and so it's clear who called whom and at what time. However, what's less clear is exactly what was communicated and at which time. Now, if you speak to someone multiple times in one day, it's really hard to remember what you said at what particular time, unless you're making a note of it. So in reference to Podrick Byrne's statement, the DPP said that Byrne's statement was taken five months later and that Michael McSweeney's statement was taken less than two months after Sophie's murder. And he said that Byrne's statement was strange, stating that Bailey had a pre-death photo of Sophie, which wasn't supported in Michael McSweeney's statement. And therefore he said, and I quote, McSweeney's recollection appears more logical and reliable than that of Byrne. He also said of Eddie Cassidy, and I quote, he would be wholly unreliable as a witness. Now, he stated that because he then went on to explain that he muddled up the times of the call and he believed that Superintendent Toomey had told him in a call at 1.25 that the victim was French and also about where she was killed. This is what he wrote in the report, and I'm going to quote from it. Telephone records indicate that this phone call commenced at 1.25 and went on for four minutes and 19 seconds. Superintendent Toomey, had left the scene of the murder at 12.50pm on the 23rd of December 1996, knowing that the deceased was a French national, one Sophie Toscan Duplantier. 
Therefore, during this four minute and 19 second phone call with Eddie Cassidy, Superintendent Twomey had full knowledge of the identity of Sophie Toscan Duplantier, the location where she was murdered, her nationality, and so forth. Superintendent Twomey does not refer to his telephone conversation in his statement dated the 25th of March 1997. He mentions this in a statement made in May, some five months after the call. After such a lengthy period, it's unlikely that he could recall the detail of the phone conversation with precision. I can see no reason why Superintendent Twomey would not have told Cassidy that the deceased was French and that she had been murdered. The report went on. Around that time, it would appear that her nationality was common knowledge. Prior to 2pm on the 23rd of December 1996, Cathy Farrell states that she had been told by one Anne Mooney that the deceased was French. On the basis of this information, Cathy Farrell broadcast on the 2pm news bulletin the fact that the woman murdered was French. Deirdre O'Reilly of 96FM states that she was told between 2pm and 2.15pm on the 23rd of December 1996 that the body was that of a French woman. And she contacted Band and Garda station and this information was confirmed over the phone by the guardie there. On the 3pm news bulletin, she repeated the information that the woman murdered was French. So that's two other witness accounts that are totally discredited by the DPP. And again, for me, it's problematic that the DPP is superimposing his own thoughts and belief on what he believes was said in a call, and that this is then relayed to Bailey along with the location. Here's a BGO for you, a blinding glimpse of the obvious, but I feel it needs to be stated. The whole point of a witness statement is that it's what the witness recalls about something. It should include details and specifics and reveals what they give weight to. Therefore, it's highly problematic, in my view, to second-guess a call or speculate what you believe to be the most likely scenario. Now, I'll just highlight a number of other segments in the report about some of the key witnesses and admissions that Bailey made and what the DPP concluded. It's dealt with under a section titled Alleged Informal Admissions by Bailey. Now, even that title sets a tone and paints the picture. Regarding Helen Callanan, well, Helen took what Bailey said to her very seriously, as she felt from his tone and his delivery that he was being serious. However, the DPP dismissed this in his report, and he wrote, and I quote, his remarks reek of sarcasm and not veracity. Well, again, that's the DPP's interpretation. But caution must be applied. He wasn't there to understand the tone, the inflection and the context. Helen was. And James McKenna, where James and his wife met Bailey in a bar on April the 8th, 1997. When the couple were told a local woman was killed and a man was under suspicion, Bailey asked James what he'd been told. James repeated what he'd heard and Bailey said, that's me. This statement was dismissed as the DPP claimed in his report that James's statement was not consistent with his wife's and that he had made two statements to the guards that also were not consistent. Richie and Rose Shelley, Richie and Rose were drinking in Hackett's Bar New Year's Eve 1998 and were joined by Bailey and Jules. Now they invited them back to their cottage for more drinks. The subject of the murder had come up and Bailey said that he was innocent and showed them press cuttings. Bailey and Jules then went to bed and Richie decided he wanted to go home so he started looking for a phone to call his father to collect them. Bailey got up and when he found Richie, he pointed him in the direction of the phone. Now after he had called his father... Bailey said to Richie, I did it, and he repeated it four or five times. Richie said, did what? But Bailey didn't clarify. He repeated, I went too far, I went too far. Rose apparently overheard this conversation and wanted to leave immediately. The DPP describes this in his report and makes two key determinations. Firstly, that an, in inverted commas, objective assessment of the conversation is that he wasn't talking about the murder. And he also wrote, and I quote, an indisputable fact that Ian Bailey on other occasions consistently and publicly proclaimed his innocence. Secondly, that because the Shelleys didn't come forward at the time and tell the police about this conversation, the DPP concluded that it, in inverted commas, diminished the credibility of their recollection and that at the time they didn't attach any weight to it. And furthermore, and I quote, that Shelley's evidence is, in inverted commas, dangerously unreliable. Now, I'm no lawyer, but I do know a lot about people reporting late and why they choose not to report, particularly if you're a witness and you don't want to be involved in a case. 
And it's hugely dangerous to dismiss and discredit witnesses simply because they didn't come forward at the time. About Caroline Lethwick's statement, the DPP wrote this, and I quote, that her statement was taken nearly five months after the murder. One wonders how she could recall precise times after such a lapse of time. In any event, the times she mentions do not make sense. Of the bonfire, the DPP says that he finds it hard to believe that Louise Kennedy recalled the right date of December the 26th of the bonfire because, and I quote, After a period of four months, her recollection could easily be an error as to the date. A fire in a country area is surely not unusual. So now you're going to hear a clip from episode seven of the podcast West Cork about the bonfire. The guards knew there had been a bonfire at the back of the studio cottage, the cottage down the lane from the prairie, where Ian went to work and where he sometimes went to sleep. Maybe they thought he'd, that he'd burnt some of his clothes that had blood on. I think that was the implication, which was ridiculous. The guards had search warrants for the prairie and the studio where Ian worked. So just as Ian and Jules were being interrogated that day, detectives were combing through the properties, which meant scenes of crime detective Eugene Gilligan was back in West Cork. We're automatically thinking... What's in the bonfire? Detective Gilligan and his partner settled down on their haunches and began sifting through the bonfire remains with spoons. In, in the kits that we have, we had a spoon that size. And you're sitting down, makes you comfortable, and you're literally doing that. What is it? It's scraping away. Scraping away ash. Scraping away ash like that, sitting down like this, scraping away and watching what's coming out. Shoe eyelets, clothing buttons, jeans... Uh, other bits of, tiny bits of, a lot of bits of bed clothing. There was uh, parts of the mattress of beds, just a sprung mattress. There was shoes. Straight off, we were aware that a lot of items had been deliberately destroyed for whatever reason. Jules says there had been a fire. We just gave the place a really big clear out because there was too much rubbish in there. They did burn a mattress. Um, oh, I think it was a stinky old mattress. Mice had been living in it. You know, it really was bad. But, she says, they didn't burn any clothes or shoes. And crucially, both Ian and Jules say this was an old fire. Jules said they'd had the bonfire in October, November time. When the guards asked Ian, he said no later than early December. Which isn't what their neighbours, the Jacksons, say. Delia Jackson said she'd been out walking with her mum on or around Christmas Day when they smelled the smoke and heard a fire coming from Ian's backyard. They didn't see it, but they talked about it. They had a conversation about how strange it was. They weren't thinking about the murder. They didn't think it was suspicious. They just thought it was a curious time of year to have a bonfire. I would have no problem swearing on any any book to say that uh, there was a fire in his back garden at the studio during the Christmas period. No, No doubt about that whatsoever. Okay, so you heard another neighbour, Delia Jackson. Well, she thought it odd to have a bonfire after Christmas. And she remembers it being this time specifically after Christmas because she was working in London before and she wasn't around. And she said she would swear to that. Jules also conceded that there was a bonfire and that they decided to clear out some of their things, including a horsehair mattress. She said that the bonfire burned for three days and it was before Christmas. She also said it would be unlikely Bailey had a bonfire without her knowing, as he was a hoarder. So for me, that makes the bonfire even more unusual. Interestingly, Bridget McLaughlin recollected that, and I quote, in the course of my conversation with Owen Bailey, I asked him about the rumours that he had burned some clothes on the morning after the murder. He replied, I had to burn clothes because they were covered in turkey blood. So he didn't deny the bonfire, nor the date of it, which stands out to me, along with the fact that Jules says he's a hoarder, so surely he'd be unlikely to get rid of things. And why do you burn things just because they have blood on them? You see, Jules Thomas confirmed that blood did get on Bailey's clothes from killing the turkeys. She stated she tried to wash his shorts and that they may have ended up on the bonfire. Jules to the rescue again. But still, why would you put them on the bonfire? Now, as I said, Jules said the fire was in early December, and having told the Guardi this, they believed that both Bailey and Jules were lying in relation to the fire. Now, the DPP wrote, and I quote, This office is not persuaded that is the case. 
But what's interesting to me is that Robert Sheehan is prepared to cast doubt on a witness's recollection and states that bonfires are not unusual at this time in the country, although numerous witnesses who live in the country and not Dublin like him say that they are. Another interesting judgment, again in Bailey's favour, despite multiple witness accounts corroborating each other, stating that the fire was after Christmas. But as you heard in the clip, nothing of any evidential value was found in the ashes of the fire. And then there's Malachi Reed, where the DPP wrote that it was, and I quote, abundantly clear that Malachi was not upset immediately after getting a lift home with Bailey, and that he only became upset following a conversation with the guard who went to the school the following day and spoke with him. The DPP wrote that it was only after this conversation that he'd turned it into something more sinister. Well, again, he's making a lot of assumptions here about a 14-year-old boy and how he might react, but yet he doesn't know the 14-year-old boy, nor has he ever met him. So just now knowing what you know, what's the balance of probabilities that all these witnesses are wrong? That they all misremembered? That they all got the dates wrong? Because that's really what the DPP is saying. And I'm going to return to this, but that's the question we have to ruminate on. It goes to the heart of this case when assessing the totality of the circumstances and their relevance. And there are some other points that are raised within the DPP's report that are valid. For example, he raises the question that either Bailey was wearing the long black coat or not. If he were wearing it at the time, how did he get the scratches up his arms if he did kill Sophie? Surely his arms would have been protected because they were covered, and that's a valid point. Now, of course, there's conflicting statements about the existence of the scratches on Bailey's hands and arms. Some people saw the scratches, others didn't. Well, some people are observant and others are not. And if you're drinking in a dark bar, what's the likelihood that you'll see scratches on someone's arms or hands? There are also witnesses, including two of Jules's daughters, that confirm that he did cut the Christmas tree down on December the 22nd, and so the tree cutting did happen, and the turkeys were killed. But another standout point to me in the DPP's report is made by the DPP about the scratches, and I'm going to direct quote. On December the 28th, 1996, Guard O'Leary asked Bailey how he cut his hands, and Bailey explained while cutting the top off a tree to make a Christmas tree. Bailey then took off his jacket and Guard O'Leary noticed that the scratches were on the back of both hands and up as far as both elbows. Bailey's willingness to assist the guardie is indicative of innocence. There it is again. Bailey's willingness and cooperation, which to Robert Sheehan is indicative of Bailey's innocence. And that really goes to the essence of this report. Each witness and piece of evidence highlighted is undermined and discredited throughout the report. Also, he says that he listened to a tape by Caroline Monger, the Paris Match journalist, and that from listening to Bailey, he sounded credible and convincing. It's such a strange report to me. Full disclosure, I've not read anything like it before throughout my career, and I sent it to Jim Clementi and asked if he had. Now, he's a former New York City prosecutor, and he said that he hadn't and he was shocked by its contents too. You see, to me, it's reminiscent of Epstein and Acosta and the Sweetheart Deal, and Bill Cosby and Bruce Castor, and I can't shake the overtones of it, and I'm going to return to that. What's interesting to me is that Judge Moran presided over the libel trial brought by Bailey against eight newspapers in 2003. Now, for the first time, key witnesses gave their testimony in person, and the evidence was tested in front of a judge. The judge concluded that there were inconsistencies in Bailey's version of events and that of other witnesses, and he said, and I quote, on the balance of probabilities, he accepted the version put forward by the other witnesses. And so a judge, having heard and seen all the witnesses, makes a very different determination. But the 2001 DPP report and the decision not to prosecute Bailey had serious repercussions, paving the way to a landmark legal ruling, namely Bailey not being extradited to France, followed by two major actions, a high court lawsuit against the state by both Bailey and Thomas, and a probe into alleged Garda misbehaviour by the Garda Shihana Ombudsman Commission, the GSOC. All of this happened after the DPP's report was given to Ian Bailey and his legal team. 
a move that is unprecedented. More on that next week. There have been so many twists and turns in this case across the years, and I just keep coming back to Sophie and her family. They just seem to have been lost throughout all of these reports, all of these inquiries and lawsuits. And so I'm going to end with hashtag her name was Sophie, hashtag justice for Sophie. Please join me back in the intelligence cell for the final episode in the series. Until then, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on that's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working the hvac is humming and his facility shines with Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces plus 24 7 customer support his venue never misses a beat call quickgranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done